If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, national political correspondent for McClatchy covering Democrats. And I'm Andrea Dresch, reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram covering politics here in D.C. This week, we're taking a look at how Facebook's affecting political campaigns this year. Andrea, who's going to help us break this down? First, we have Melissa Ryan from the newsletter Control-Alt-Right-Delete and the Factual Democracy Project. She'll break down how Facebook operates as a media company. And then we'll go to Tara McGowan of Acronym and Lockwood Strategies to talk about how Facebook might affect campaigns during this year's election cycle. All right, you ready, Andrea? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Okay, so Andrew, we're going to bring on Melissa Ryan. You know, she is a noted critic of Facebook, and she has what I think is an interesting perspective that you haven't heard a lot about, that Facebook needs to start thinking about itself, and regulators need to start thinking about Facebook as a media company like the the kind that you and I work for, and that they are responsible for the content on their platform. It's kind of a, a bit of a radical idea, but I think one that could gain some momentum here as criticism of Facebook uh, increases. Yep, Melissa's aptly named Factual Democracy Project put out some interesting polling about Facebook this week, suggesting that trust in the social media platform is really low. So, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I wanted to bring you on because Facebook is obviously at the center of many people's lives, um, and therefore it is at the center of our political life. I think that was no more true than in 2016. And we have seen a lot of the subsequent fallout that continues to this day, actually. And I wanted to, to talk to you and get your perspective, because if I understand this correctly, that Facebook really, you know, in the sort of big picture, needs to start thinking of itself as a media outlet that is responsible for the, just like McClatchy, for instance, that is responsible for the content on its platform. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm a critic of Facebook because I'm also a user of Facebook, and I want Facebook to do better. I mean, I use it every day as a consumer. I've also used it as a political strategist where I've been organizing communities and buying content. So I look at what where we've seen Facebook go in the past couple of years, and I'm really disappointed. I think a lot of the trouble started when they chose to take their trending topics section and remove human curation from it. And what they said was, you know, we are a tech platform. We are are not a media company and we are not going to be the arbiters of truth. The problem with that is when you take human curation away, you are making a decision and you are making a decision that you are not going to control what's on it, but you're also making a decision to let other parties game it and weaponize it. So by ceding that responsibility, what they did was they let other hostile actors start weaponizing it to spread propaganda, to spread fake news. We know that happened both foreign and domestic. So I think that's just the the first big thing that I've seen. 
The other thing that we now know is that there was a giant data breach with Cambridge Analytica where illegally obtained data was used, at least a couple of instances that we know, to uh, run persuasive political ads. And we still don't know the users that were affected by this data breach. They don't know if they were affected. They don't know if they're still being profiled. And they don't know who else has access to that data set. And I think that's a big problem as a consumer. As Alex and I, people who work for print newspapers, um, should we be excited about some of the changes that Facebook is making? I think it's a, a wait and see approach. You know, we, we know that Mark Zuckerberg is very sorry. He did a, a big PR apology tour last week where he promised to do better. So this was a major breach of trust. And, and I'm really sorry that this happened. Um, you know, we have a basic responsibility to protect people's data. And if we can't do that, then, then we don't deserve to have the opportunity to serve people. What's really important to think about is that Facebook is only going to go as far as its users and its shareholders and as policymakers demand. So it's less about what Facebook is doing now and more about what they're going to feel the pressure to do over the next year. The sort of natural pushback I have to this is this idea that, you know, Facebook, of course, it, it, it is in a lot of ways different than what, you know, the company that Andrea and I work for we are professionals who get paid to do this. And, you know, there is kind of a system that our stories run through to check for accuracy and fairness and all the like. Facebook, of course, is literally like a billion people kind of uploading their own things. How is it possible that Facebook could even monitor all of this content and then try to legislate what's fake or not? Because I can, I can tell you, I mean, and it has been in the past, you know, that legislating is going to be politically fraught, to say the least. It's going to be politically fraught, and it's going to be politically fraught in a bipartisan way. The fun thing right now is everyone is mad at Facebook. Republicans are mad at Facebook because they think that their content is being censored. Democrats are mad at Facebook because they think a lot of fake news that shouldn't be on the platform and targeting of women and people of color and minors in the case of the recent Parkland students uh, is on there that shouldn't be. So it's going to be an interesting fight no matter which way we go. But you think technically they can do this? I do think they can do it, and I think they should do it. So Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut also has some thoughts on Facebook. Here's him on MSNBC. I think that this issue ought to be bipartisan. There is nothing political in the sense of party about violations of privacy. And the violation here of American privacy is so profound and widespread. I wondered if from a political standpoint, prioritizing things that people are sharing versus news organizations are sharing, does that have the potential to change the way campaigns are run this way? You know, I think smart campaigners have learned that gaming the newsfeed is just as important as running ads. You know, you definitely saw with the Russian propaganda campaigns and you saw with fake news proprietors, both for profit and for political purposes, that part of it is gaming what people see in that newsfeed and a lot of it is news articles. And in the case of trending topics, you actually have still, I mean, even as a couple of weeks ago, you have fake news sites like Zero Hedge and Daily Newswire that make it in the trending topics pretty frequently. You still have Infowars stories ending up there. And that can be gamed easily. Well, and for our beyond the bubble purposes, is it putting a priority on local things over national things? I think that's part of the way it's going. And certainly that's what media advocates want Facebook to do. You know, Melissa, you and I have talked 
for a few months at, at this point, and I think one point that you have made to me that I thought was fascinating was everything that happened in, in 2016 from the perspective of that there was this influx of quote-unquote fake news and that you know foreign agents were, were messing around in, in Facebook and affecting how American voters saw the election. All of that is prepared to happen in 2018 again, but nobody seems to be making that connection. Yeah, I think we'll get some clarity on that. The Senate Intelligence Committee promised at their last hearing that they would release a report this spring for both Republican and Democratic campaigns so they would have some sense of how to approach it, at least from the perspective of Richard Burr and Mark Warner, who chair and are leading a ranking on the Intelligence Committee. Interference is still happening and is going to happen in 2018. They take it as a fact. Part of the problem right now is everyone knows it's coming, but there's not much sense of what to do about it. And I don't think either of the party committees, the RNC or the DNC or any of the campaign committees have really done much to prepare campaigns. Hopefully when we get that intelligence report, that'll help give the party committees some guidance on on where to go and what to do next. I mean, do you expect that Facebook could make any changes? I think Facebook is making changes. I think they can talk about some publicly and some of them they're probably being more private about. I would have to say it is in Facebook's interest for them to not play the same role that they played in 2016. You know, I would hope that they are doing everything they can to prevent the same kind of interference because that is definitely not the story they want to come out of 2018, which is, you know, Facebook screws up again. Who on Capitol Hill really understands these issues and is an ally of people who want to see changes at Facebook? You know, I think it really the Senate Intelligence Committee has consistently done the most comprehensive hearings. Their members, both Republican and Democrat, come the most prepared to answer questions. Whenever I write about them, I refer to them as the adults in the room. And part of the reason is, you know, they take their job and their duty seriously. And I know there is there's some back and forth as to whether uh, Mark Zuckerberg is going to testify next week. We heard that he would. I heard this morning there's no confirmation of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It sounds like Energy and Commerce will be the first committee. But I hope that uh, Senate intelligence gets him as well, because I think their members are going to be the most prepared to really hold him and Facebook leadership accountable. What questions would you want them to ask him? Oh, God. (laughs) Or what what answers would you? I mean, what, what do you want to hear Mark Zuckerberg talk about? You know, I want an explanation beyond what you are allowed to do in a PR apology tour. He's apologizing because he has to. Facebook is only going to go as far as consumers demand. And I think that's important to remember. I think it's actually important to remember from the activist side too. You know, if you feel that Zuckerberg hasn't done enough, it's on all of us to continue keeping up that pressure. I think that senators are going to ask tougher questions about transparency, about data, about disclosure. I think those are are really the biggest things. But also, I want him to be able to answer questions that aren't just coming from friendly reporters. Well, as you pointed out, I mean, we do have this kind of unique situation in Washington where there is a bipartisan animus toward Facebook right now, maybe for slightly different reasons on the right and left. But that is kind of a rare opportunity maybe to bring bipartisan pressure on someone like Facebook. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Republicans and Democrats ask when they get whatever committee Zuckerberg ends up coming in front of. I suspect conservatives will talk a lot about their content not being prominent and them being censored, and Democrats will talk more about fake news. It will be interesting to see if there are regulations that everyone can agree on. It's very difficult to get Congress to do anything these days. It's not just about Facebook. 
but certainly the pressure will be on Zuckerberg from both sides. It's been really uh, amusing to me. I spend a lot of time on the pro-Donald Trump subreddit because it's just the best way to see sort of what the other <laughs> side is thinking. And Zuckerberg has become a punching bag for them. Even though Cambridge Analytica benefited them and benefited their guy, they take pot shots at Mark Zuckerberg pretty frequently since the breach. So I think it's safe to say that everybody is angry at Mark Zuckerberg right now. I mean, practically, what can... Capitol Hill do? I mean, in terms of new legislation or any kind of regulation that affects Facebook? Well, Zuckerberg had said maybe we should be regulated. And Sheryl Sandberg indicated that they were open to regulation, which means they're they're feeling that pressure. But I think it's interesting that they are open to regulation, which I think their lobbyists are probably already hard at work on getting the legislation they want, but less open to actual, you know, Zuckerberg testifying and accountability. So Facebook is going to be looking to get the regulation that will be beneficial to Facebook. If you're looking to make changes and you're looking to pressure Facebook, that's really important to know. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to bring Tara McGowan on next. And Tara is a veteran of the Obama re-election campaign. She is a top Democratic digital strategist, and which is to say, Andrea, that she really knows fake news. She has seen it up close. And she's got some interesting ideas about what Democrats should or maybe shouldn't do to combat it. Probably also knows a lot about how creepy campaigns really are. Tara, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Alex. So, you know, you are one of the the top digital strategists in the Democratic Party. Uh, You're a veteran of Barack Obama's reelection campaign. And I think you and and people in your line of work are maybe confronting a new challenge in 2018. This idea that out there in the sort of digital landscape, there could be, quote unquote, fake news. And tell me a little bit about what people in your community are saying about whether or not there's any any preparations underway or, or at least discussions about preparations to push back on this. Sure. I mean, I think in the world of of campaigns and politics, there is always awareness and concern and sort of preparations around how information is going to be used for or against candidates and certainly how information can be weaponized. It's uh, sort of the foundation of propaganda. And so I think it's just that we have new vehicles and channels for that to happen. And I certainly, I, I don't think that it's necessarily a new problem. I think that it's become a much bigger issue in political campaigns. And so, you know, on our side, I think that there is both a lot of conversation happening around how how to monitor it, how to respond to it, how to notify the platforms and other folks when it's identified, and then, you know, also how to make sure that um, the message of our candidates and campaigns is still able to get across to the voters that, um, you know, we're hoping to turn out in these elections. Well, let me ask you, I mean, just to take a step back, I mean, in your view, how much of a role did that play in 2016? I know there's a, a large ongoing debate about that. And how much of a role do you think it could play in, in 2018? I mean, how, how harmful could this be to, to campaigns, whether they're Democratic or Republican? I, I certainly think it can be harmful. I think we've seen that it has been harmful. I think uh, especially when there are close elections, anything and everything can make a difference. And so it's really important to sort of be vigilant and also to have, you know, your own programs and strategies to make sure that your message is getting across um, and that you're using all of the channels available to you, having worked in quote unquote digital for a number of years now. I think 
we have been slow to adapt to be able to have real strategies and investments to reach voters wherever they are, on their phones, on social media, et cetera. I think it's gotten uh, much better. We've seen a lot more investment. I have been able to run really significant programs of that nature, but it's important that we accelerate that and we focus more on how to engage people the way that they engage with information as well. And that can be quite a knot to untangle, but it's important to think about how people are, are finding and using that information to make decisions. Is there an opportunity that this goes too far, that stories like uh, Alex and I write could eventually get pushed off of Facebook? I think the concern is far more on are they going to be able to monitor and filter out all of the the fake news, frankly, as opposed to over filtering. I mean, I think this is also a symptom of the competition for attention, right? Increasingly, it's hard to compete for and capture people's attention. And so the more salacious you are, the more, you know, your news stands out, the more that it speaks to people's identity or ideological views, the more they tend to engage with it. And I think that's that's a really grave concern, generally, because of the echo chambers that uh, some of these platforms can create. You know, Tara, with, with so much focus on fake news in 2016, as, as we head into 2018 and the campaigns there, I'm wondering how you can combat when you see that online and it's affecting a certain campaign, what I'm wondering is, can the campaign itself really directly respond to that? Or is that, or is that a bad idea? It wouldn't be my recommendation because <laughs> okay, I think I, well, and I think Donald Trump has proved this out quite a bit, but it's an obvious thing. It's if, if you are speaking to your base and that message is only elevated by the other side, you're getting more, more impressions, if you will. And so much of advertising, of course, is trying to get those impressions out at a high frequency. And so I wouldn't recommend that you elevate the fake news on the other side as a I would recommend, and I think that um, a lot of campaigns are doing this, is really focusing on and organizing. I think Facebook, um, the only defense I can uh, come to with Facebook is that I really do think it's a really powerful organizing tool. So much of the attention right now is on advertising and everything, but it is uh, where people are going to engage with their family and friends. And Facebook groups have become incredible organizing tools and spaces to engage people directly. And I think that we have a lot of power on our side, especially right now, this year, there's so much enthusiasm and, and engagement more than we've seen in quite some time that people want to show up and they want to talk about the elections. They want to talk about candidates and they are going to be much better messengers than any advertisement we buy. And if we can help provide them some of that content, but really elevate their voices as well, I personally believe that can be far more powerful than disseminating a lot of fake news if you appeal to people where they are and what they care about. Are there some positive outcomes on the horizon for the way advertising is handled online? Are we going to now know more about like disclosure or where it's coming from or where money is being spent? Yeah, I would really welcome more transparency into the digital ad industry. Frankly, I think it's been really opaque uh, for, for far too long. I also think the FEC has rolled out overdue <laughs> regulations to treat digital ads the way that television and radio ads have been treated, requiring disclaimers. I think that's a very positive shift. That doesn't concern me at all. I still think that, as I mentioned, organic content or messages that people are posting on their own accord can be more powerful and persuasive even. It sounds like, to your point, that if campaigns respond to this fake news, that then they're just heaping more attention on it. And then all of a sudden, the discussion is, on that instead of education or, or whatever the campaign would rather talk about. 
campaigns are in a tough spot, it sounds like, when this comes in. I mean, because you're relying on Facebook, and, and yes, they are responding to criticism, but I don't think anyone, you know, certainly the critics don't think they did a good job in 2016 responding to this. So I, I take it there's a little skepticism about their response in 2018. I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, that, that in some ways, Democratic campaigns or Republican campaigns would just kind of have to suck it up. I mean, is that... Is that accurate or, or is there a, a different way to try to push back on it? I mean, something that I've noticed, and I don't know if this is true in every case, but it's been interesting to me is that when a fake news story hits virality or something in a certain geography or, or country, whatever, what have you, when it makes it to the mainstream news is usually when it's already had the impact that was desired behind it. And so I think it's really important to focus on how we're getting our message out early and often and through trusted messengers of people who 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 believe in the candidates or believe in the issues that we're campaigning for and on, and that the focus needs to be far less on how you're going to drive the media narrative and how you're going to communicate to people directly. And that's sort of the power that these platforms provide. And I think that's what we saw was was really leveraged in in not great ways by the other side in 2016. But there are ways to do that without being dishonest or manipulative, I think. I guess, I mean, <laughs> let's put ourselves in the mind of sort of the average voter. In 2018, they're trying to make a decision in the House race or Senate race and the governor's race. And from your perspective, I mean, how dangerous is it to go on Facebook and try to get your news from that platform? I mean, as a kind of reliable source of news, is it just gone in, in your perspective or in the perspective of a lot of sort of veteran campaign officials? No, I, I don't think so at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think that they're suffering very rightfully so a lot of attention and having what I would see as a bit of a crisis PR-wise, and I think it's going to make people think a little bit more potentially about what information they put out there. But it's certainly not just about Facebook. We give our data to Google every day. We give our data everywhere. I mean, the 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 fact that data has become such a tool for monetization for massive corporations and that it's such a part of our daily life in ways we don't necessarily think about. I think it's a positive thing that these stories are coming to light and people are thinking a little bit more about what they're putting out there. But I also believe, and this is, I'm, I'm a digital native, Facebook expanded beyond Harvard my freshman year of college. So I've been on it since freshman year of college. And it has a living timeline of my life since I was 18 for better and for worse, right? And I definitely think about that a lot, but it is it is a part of my natural behavior. I don't think about it necessarily when I log on to see what's going on, and I don't think that that behavior is going to shift just because of, of what we're seeing and hearing and learning right now. So I do think it's still an important tool for communication. So no matter what's happened, I mean, you your advice to Democratic campaigns is we still need to engage and use Facebook. Oh, no, no question. Absolutely. And I think that what we should do is think about it not just as a vehicle for advertisements and more of a vehicle for organizing. You know, our supporters are on Facebook. They should be talking about the candidates. That is going to be more powerful than ads. Of course, Facebook knows a lot about us. But would people be really creeped out if they knew what campaigns could do even before they had information about us on Facebook, the things that you can know about people to target them with, like, direct mail? Is this, like, a little bit of a panicked reaction because Facebook knows so much, but also campaigns have known a lot about us for a long time? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think, you know, so do consumer marketers and corporations. I think that, you know, we we are increasingly targeted based on our likes, our interests, our behavior online, um, because so much of that is is captured and sold. Hey, uh, Tara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was great to be here. Okay, let's move on to my favorite part of the show, the lightning round. Andrea, you're up first. 
me make a shameless Texas plug here. Speaking you always of, make a shameless Texas plug. <laughs> it's pretty shameless. Uh, speaking of campaigns who use Facebook aggressively, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who's running against Ted Cruz, who Facebook lives everything he does, including a road trip across the state with uh, Will Hurd, had a massive fundraising quarter, uh, $6.7 million. It's a lot of money for a race against Ted Cruz. And he has told us, repeatedly that he doesn't want to be the next project of the left, a John Ossoff, or where people are filing in money from out of the state. They also say it's 70% of that $6.8 million from in Texas. That is um, a lot of money. <laughs> even, even in a state like Texas, that is a lot of money. And I think people were floored Tuesday morning here where they, they saw that he, that's what he uh, reported from the first quarter. It's more than any other Democratic campaign in the cycle. Well, speaking of prodigious fundraising, uh, my Democrat is Randy Bryce. He is the congressman from Wisconsin taking on Paul Ryan, goes by the moniker Iron Stash. He raised more than $2 million in the first quarter of the year. It's an incredible amount of money for a congressional campaign, much less a long shot campaign. And Randy Bryce, to be clear, it remains a long shot against Paul Ryan. The interesting thing to me is between Beto O'Rourke and Randy Bryce, you know, they have raised all of this money. They're the two leading fundraisers in their sort of respective weight classes between Senate and House. (laughs) It's not exactly, though, where Democratic leaders want most of the party's money to go. And I think there is this tension in the Democratic Party right now between Democratic donors giving with their heart instead of their head. You know, they would prefer, I think a lot of uh, Senate leaders would prefer Claire McCaskill get that kind of money, right? And then the House side, I think a lot of Democratic leaders want someone like Jason Crow in Colorado 6 to get that kind of money. But we'll see. You know, we've had a lot of upsets in recent electoral history, so you can't rule out Beto or Randy Bryce uh, winning their own elections, I suppose. Well, and I don't think Claire McCaskill is hurting for money in Missouri. Absolutely. All right. That's it for us. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. He might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk to you next week. 